tragedies happen. Families lose members in war or, or famine. You know, wealth can disappear. All of these things happen. How we deal with that is where we have a choice. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. I am so excited to interview you today, Jane. Um, When I first started thinking about podcasting, at first I thought about my dream guests from all the other podcasts that I'd listened to. And then I got really excited when it dawned on me that part of the fun of having my own podcast is I can think about anyone I find fascinating, even if I've never heard them on a podcast. And how I know you is, is quite interesting. You, among many other things, do these family constellations workshops. So I attended a couple of your workshops a few years back before the pandemic, and I thought you have this incredible gift as a healer of systems and the the work that you do i see it as being both somatic and experiential it's got a bit of a drama therapy element to it it's got uh, a bit of a family therapy element and it's so far beyond anything that i could explain or that fits within the conventional model of therapeutic practice as we know it as i've gotten to know you in the last week or so, I've learned a bit more about your experiences and credentials. So I'll just introduce what I know of you, and then you could take it from there. So as I know, you have a PhD in human and organizational development. Is that right? Systems. Actually, my my PhD is in systems. It says systems on the diploma. <laughs> so it's systems all the way down, right? <laughs> all right. A PhD in systems. And you are the founder and director of the Human Systems Institute Incorporated. And mm-hmm. you also have a small farm a little ways outside yep. of Portland, which is beautiful. That's, right. That's where you have yeah. your workshops. And yeah. I think uh, during our other call, you said that you've done some international work. I traveled for about 16 years and taught constellation work internationally, wow. every place from Asia to Europe to South America. Wow. So it was quite an experience. Yeah. Now, I'm, now I've sort of bought the farm, so to speak, so I'm staying home. You literally bought the farm. And constellations are just one thing you do. And you you could Mm -hmm. have a career that's just purely constellations. I know that's a big part of what you do. And I find that fascinating. But you're also a consultant, a coach. You work with systems at many different levels. Yeah. Constellation work is important for sure, but I've I've added a lot of things into that mix, and uh, you know, being at Fielding exposed me to a lot of different resources as well. So maybe I'll share with our listeners, just from a lay perspective, what I know constellations to be and why I think it's so fascinating, and then you can uh, explain 
what it really is and, and correct where I've gotten it wrong. Okay. <laughs> so because I, I really okay. want the audience to understand why I think it's so cool to have you here today. Um, and I know not yeah. a lot of people have heard of family constellations. I think for those who have heard of constellations, it'll really perk their ears up because I remember I heard of family constellations workshops many years before I ever went to one. My first workshop with you was right. just a few years ago. So family constellations workshops, as, as I've experienced them as a layperson, it's basically you you get together for a day in a big group of people, what, about 20, give or take? Yeah, give or take, right. Okay. And uh, there are a few people that day who have each signed up to do their own constellation, and everyone else is there to support that. So mm-hmm. I went once as a guest participant and then once as someone who was doing my own constellation. And why might someone pursue this? Uh, and it's really a tool for solving any problem at a systems mm-hmm. level. So a lot of the problems you address are family or generational problems, but they could also be other types of human systems. Or even I've seen you do parts work. So for those who are familiar mm-hmm. with parts Inner work. Inner systems. Right. So like internal family systems where you've, mm-hmm. you've helped people sort out these inner conflicts between uh, parts of themselves or um, things that represent some kind of archetype in their life. So someone comes to you with a problem, a family conflict, a part of them that's hurting or stuck in some way, and you help them identify who are the key players, what are the components that are part of this constellation of, of people and energies and forces. And then the person you're helping selects volunteers from the group and asks those volunteers to represent those people or those parts. So they kind of look around and they get a sense for one reason or another, they're guided to ask this person or that person, hey, will you be my brother? Will you be my mother? Will you be this hurting part of me? And volunteers can say yes or no. I've never seen anyone say no (laughs) when I've been there because people is, are eager to participate in this, but they, they choose these people as a representative and it could be three or four or five people. And, and then you just have the person, what do you call them? The client, the, the client, okay. the client's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You're guiding them to make a shape in relation to each other that represents how the client is experiencing these relationships. So you're working with positioning, how close or far away are different members of the system? What angles do they have toward each other? And this is where the magic starts that that I've experienced Mm -hmm. that almost anyone who's ever done one of these workshops experiences that the moment you're standing in that position, uh, representing that person or that energy, Mm-hmm. You start to feel what that person or that energy feels like in this person's life. And then so much knowledge comes out of that. And, and you as facilitator, oh, and, and we should probably specify that the client chooses a representative for him or herself. Themselves. Right. right. So they get to witness themselves and then stand back. Uh, and then you mm-hmm. go around And you give people gentle questions and guidance about how it feels to be there, uh, what they find themselves wanting to do or share, how they find themselves wanting to move. And then you give some realignments. And simply by being positioned in relationship to each other, 
knowledge comes through and as the positioning moves, the healing and the transformation comes through and and you can actually feel it. And it sounds magical to anyone who's never done this before, but you've worked with people from all walks of life. You don't have to have a strong sense of spirituality or believe in pseudosciency kind of stuff to actually really get a lot out of this. It's a powerful transformational mm-hmm. experience. I guess it lasts an hour or two. And I've just witnessed breakthroughs for the people I've supported. I felt like it was a breakthrough for me. And so I was just so fascinated by your gift. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on and, and to share your knowledge and wisdom about that. So that's my layperson's description. What would you add to that <laughs> okay. or correct that about what constellations are? So the first thing I would say is what you're describing is a form of the work. It mm. isn't the work. So what you've described okay. is the way most of us meet constellations and are impressed by it, which is um, we go to a workshop and, um, of course, as human beings, what moves us is feelings, right? And so what we learn in this experience that you've described by using representatives is that we're connected to other people and we actually can know more about them than our conscious mind thinks we can know about them. When I first met uh, Bert Hellinger and I saw this work, I was uh, just like everybody else, I was gobsmacked. I was like, you know, what was that? (laughs) And uh, why is it so transformational? Why does it have such an impact on people? And so those questions have uh, animated my search to understand and also realizing the impact that this has on people to make sure I'm using best practices, to make sure that I'm it's safe, you know, that it's that it's beneficial, because you can also see, since it's so impactful, the potential for harm. Mm. When I saw this work for the first time, somebody actually asked me to represent a sister, and I only have one brother, so that was you know, that was a novel experience to be a sister and feel what that felt like. So I, I, what I, I really have spent probably a lot of years trying to understand what, what is this phenomena? First of all, the thing that attracts a lot of us to the work is representing. It's like, how can I stand in one place and feel something I didn't know before? And then by being moved, you know, to a different position, uh, feel something different. Mm-hmm. And people have had all kinds of theories. Um, Bert, for most of his professional life, would not theorize. Um, the founder of the work would not theorize. Wow. He just said, there it is, and we can use it, right? And uh, and I knew at one point I actually had a little conversation with him about phenomenology because I knew he had studied that. Uh, and so he's just dealing with the subjective experience and treating that like real information, like people who stand in place and feel something. I feel sad as the mother standing here facing away from my children and and the father. You know, we just work with it. And I actually had the opportunity to talk with uh, Jakob Schneider and some of the folks who were with Bert when he first started experimenting in the early 1970s. And it was kind of by accident that this came about. He was just working with a therapy group and asked somebody, no, I, I don't understand your story, but you just find some people and, and show me. And that's mm-hmm. how he discovered kind of that two things that were really important. One is that uh, we can uh, bring out what other people are experiencing. We can represent. And in our Western culture, that seems surprising. In other cultures, it might not be so surprising that we're that connected and we can know these things about each other. But for us, we're so individualistic Mm -hmm. that it seems astonishing, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we 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 also have a culture that's rationally oriented. So it's so lovely to have permission to feel, even on behalf of somebody else, if we can't do our own feelings, right? So there's that's lovely. But the other thing that's so fascinating about it is the position matters. An inch on the floor, if you have people standing in relationship to each other, matters. So at one point, one of the early adopters in Germany, a a psychiatrist named Albrecht Marr, um, coined the the term the knowing field, like the knowing field does it, you know. But Bert (laughs) is also quoted as saying, don't be ridiculous. The The field doesn't know anything, right? So... What is making all this stuff happen? Right? This is so magical. Like we, somebody says, would you be my sister? And I stand up and then they move me around on the floor. And then I have sisterly feelings. Right? It was <laughs> mm-hmm. just, I don't have sisters. So that's an odd <laughs> experience. And that's convincing because it's like, that's real. We trust our feelings. Right? So I got really curious about how does this work? What, what are we actually tapping into? How do we use this? method responsibly because Mm -hmm. it does affect our feelings and it does affect who we are and it's our family oftentimes or our business so these are really important things right so one of the things i learned is like every time i kept trying to find this magical field outside i kept finding the body Mm -hmm. i kept finding us right and what i've come to realize in you know, through Merleau Ponty, through all of these inactive con- cognition and, in, you know, intersubjectivity, all these studies that there's actually a lot of, there's a whole body of research on this, is that we actually aren't so separate. And video has really shown us how uh, related to each other we are. I mean, like, how much c- communication is a, is a co-creation, Right? Like you're nodding your head and I'm moving. If, if we were to look at the video, I'm going to be moving somewhat in sync with that. So body to body, we create a lot more than our conscious minds are aware of. So if I grow up in a certain family and my mom is depressed and I'm looking into that face, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm feeling the quality of her touch. Mm-hmm. That's going to be like a foundational knowledge of the world that's going to set my body up mm-hmm. to expect the world to be a certain way right and maybe she's depressed because her mother died in childbirth you know like whatever that story is it's being handed down just through all of these little interactions that we have that we're not really able to track in conscious mind we're we're sort of making each other all the time mm-hmm. and so if I really sit quietly and, and just sit with somebody and really allow myself to feel with them, I'm going to have a sense of how well they were mothered. I'm going to have a, I can look in their face and see what's happened to them. Whether mm-hmm. their eyes have a little bit of sadness or whether somebody looked at them with love. Mm. You know, so it's like you, you are the field. I am the field. We are the field, right? Mm. We are making this thing together. And that's good news because you don't always have a room of representatives handy, right? And if that was how, if that was what it took for this to work, then we would be stuck, and especially in the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. But we can still do this work in so many different ways. And what I learned is that I like to call the body soma. 
because body sounds like an inert object, right? Mm-hmm. The body, right? Instead of soma, which is this living, intentional, intelligent being that's in relationship with its world. And uh, soma has a very strong felt sense of where I stand in relationship to those that are important to me, mm-hmm. the other people in my world, right? Mm-hmm. And I've worked in many different countries in that phrase, where do you stand in relationship to someone? Is there. We all understand it. It's just part of being a human being that totters around on two little feet, you know, instead of four, four legs like a sensible animal. What I've learned is that what we're really doing in a certain way is tapping into that somatic knowledge. Like, like for example, I'll say to people, where did you get that body? <laughs> it came from other bodies, right? <laughs> it came from other bodies. It came from like it came from someplace. It knows that, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to remember all that. That's it. Doesn't just spring like you know, Botticelli's Venus out of the sea, right? <laughs> so, so we come into our lives uh, already made by and in contact with the history that came before us, whatever those circumstances were, whether our grandparents you know, survive war or Holocaust or whatever, poverty, uh, whether there was great wealth, whether there was loss, Mm -hmm. all of those things have shaped the bodies that gave us our body, right? Mm -hmm. Which means that I can talk to somebody like we are right now, like on a Zoom chat, and say, go find some little objects in your house, choose one to represent you know, your mom, one for your dad, one for your brother, one for you, and ask them to, to use that felt sense of where do you stand? Where do these things stand in relationship to each other? Mm. And I can have that image of mm. like, yeah, mom's looking out of the picture, dad's looking at mom, nobody's looking at the kids. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I have the story mm. right there. Mm-hmm. So it's lovely to have these other ideas, but it's kind of practical and nice Mm -hmm. that all I need is you um, to be able to understand and uh, help you see the system that you're a part of. Mm -hmm. Um, And Stephanie, you're really astute in pointing out that part of the magic is to say, and choose someone to represent yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Choose something to represent yourself. Mm As a therapist, you know, as soon as you can get somebody to see themselves from a meta perspective, mm-hmm. like that's worth like a month of therapy right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's pretty slick. Yeah. You know, so I place you in relationship to yourself in the system. Now you can see how that affects you. Mm-hmm. And now we can begin to see what happened, what could happen, mm-hmm. where is there potential for something better? Mm-hmm. to emerge in this system. And what are the usually small movements? Sometimes it's like a having somebody take a step forward and turn and look. Mm-hmm. Right? Now I see you. Mm-hmm. Simple sentence. Right? It's often simple, small things that actually put us into a different relationship. And in that different relationship are different possibilities, different, poss- different ways for us to go forward. So, um, however, however we found this, and I don't think it's a new thing. I think, you know, indigenous cultures, native cultures, probably have been all over this, but it kind of got lost in Western culture. Mm. 
Because we got separated from our feelings. We got separated from each other. Right? Mm-hmm. And so this, I think one of the lovely things about being in a circle with people who are doing this work is you get to reclaim that sense of being part of mm-hmm. a feeling circle, right? An animated, alive circle of people who are feeling where they come from and looking for ways to heal. So I don't know if that's <laughs> uh, different that's, from what you were thinking or... <laughs> no, that's great. Or what? It's so good to hear your wisdom you're talking about the body as this underutilized resource of knowledge and wisdom and sensation. And I think about my own mm, mm-hmm. thinking about my experience as a representative. I remember uh, the father and daughter were both there at the workshop, and mm-hmm. the daughter chose me to represent her father in her constellation. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was being the father, I barely knew who was who or what the story was, but I had the strong urge to point and go, it's all her fault about someone who was there. (laughs) It's like, well, where did that come from? And the father's looking at me like, yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, when I think about how little information I had going into this, but how much I got out of just that positioning alone, Mm-hmm. I think that's one example of how real what you're saying is that the body has such a wealth of information. When you talk mm-hmm. about indigenous cultures, one of the thoughts that came to mind for me there is that they usually have practices that involve synchrony, right? So through music and dance, mm-hmm. drum circles, uh, community dances, maybe where everyone is quite literally in a circle. Uh, But in any case, practices where our bodies are all doing the same thing to Mm -hmm. rhythm, right? And we know how powerful uh, synchrony is for creating a sense of unity in a group. And I think that that's something that we're really lacking, but it ties into what you're saying. Yeah, I like to say rhythm is regulation. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things that we experience more deeply in a constellation circle is this coming into sync with each other, is this being able to really, if I allow myself to stand in a role, then I can begin to feel the, what is made in this system, what has been made over time, right? We're not so separate from each other. There's a a guy named Robin Dunbar, who is this, the social brain hypothesis. And, and his idea is that our, our cognitive, the prefrontal kind of, you know, like thinking part of us can only handle so much information, mm-hmm. right? And friendship or connection requires reciprocity. So mm-hmm. we have to like give and take to maintain that. So I like, I don't care how many friends you have on Facebook, that you really only have a close circle of people you can do that with. Um, so, you know, there's this way that because our society right now is so overwhelming, we have so much input and so many people. And I remember thinking about this one day when I was in Shanghai and I had to walk just about 15 minutes from my hotel to the venue. And I must have, you know, there was a subway exit. And just at that time, like maybe 300, 400 people came by me. And if I really allowed myself to see and feel each of those people, I'd have been a basket case by the time I got to my <laughs> mm-hmm. venue, you know. There's only so much capacity we have to really 
perceive and and mm-hmm. be in the entrainment, you know, to, to really feel another person. And I mm-hmm. think in our culture, one of the things that's happened is we've shut down mm-hmm. uh, out of necessity, not not a bad thing, you know, just so we can slide by each other in the street mm-hmm. and not have that personal connection. That's very different than being in a small tribe, mm-hmm. a small group, family group where everybody mm-hmm. knows you and they know where you came from and they know mm-hmm. everything you did, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to be known in that way. Right, yeah. you wouldn't need the kind of filters that we have. Um, so I think, in some ways, constellation work puts us back in touch with mm-hmm. what it's like to be seen and known mm-hmm. and felt. Dan Siegel talks about the importance of be- feeling felt by another person, feeling that they get you. Right, mm-hmm. that alone is healing. Hearing you talk about the kind of necessary barriers that we put up in order to move through life efficiently makes me think of something I've found myself saying to my clients sometimes that having a healthy nervous system isn't about always being relaxed or always being alert. It's about your nervous system responding appropriately to the situation and and being able to switch gears fluidly so that when it's time to rise to the occasion, you have your wits about you, you can move quickly when it's time to relax and enjoy a meal with a loved one, you can settle down and so forth, that you can shift between these states. And what you're describing is that there's times when it's adaptive and appropriate to tune out our empathic abilities, maybe even dissociate from our bodies, right? To not feel, if you're walking down the street and there's things that could create fear or disgust, right? A, a bad smell or or a homeless right. camp that you can't do anything about where there's a mixture of pity and fear and heartstrings being mm-hmm. pulled on, right? You want to be able to block that stuff out so that you can get to your destination, like you said, with, with your wits about you all in one piece. But then you also want to mm-hmm. be able to adjust when you are in that destination. Right. I call this the social mask. Mm. Yeah. And the problem is that if we go, if we wear the social mask all day, it's hard to remember to take it off when we go home. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's what you're saying is like, when do I, when do I need that mask? Mm-hmm. Right. This persona that I wear in the street, smile. Yes. Hello. Hi. How are you? Right. And when do I, when am I able to actually be vulnerable? Um, and be real and let my sadness show. I have a little story that illustrates that. I had a a space when I was in Portland, I had a space where people had to come up the stairs and then turn into the space. And there's this moment, if you're ever sitting like in a mall or someplace and you're watching people come up the escalator, where people drop their mask in order to orient. They have to kind of show up and see where they are mm-hmm. so they know where to go. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to be looking up when this person came up the stairs and I saw a pl- pleasant-looking middle-aged man, and he dropped the mask, and there was this sadness there. just mm-hmm. struck me from across the room. And then, you know, nice, hi, how are you, this place, yes. And so uh, when he sat down to work with me, I asked, I said, you know, may I share with you something I saw? And I asked about the sadness, and he then just felt safe enough to drop the mask. And it turned out that this person had lost a child in an accident, Mm -hmm. and there had been some other children injured as well. Mm -hmm. And the other parents had sued him. His child had been, you know, like part of the 
something not caused it, but it was just mm. but that meant he was frozen. He couldn't really finish his own grieving. Mm. It, it was just tragic. And so he was stuck and the issue was loss, mm-hmm. loss of business, because he'd lost his business in that and couldn't start a new business. And if you think about that, I mean how the how the body puts things together in a more simple way. Like, how would I do that again if it cost me this? Why would I have another business if it cost mm. me my child? Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. I've seen this too with abortion. Mm. In one case I did where a woman had uh, five lovely stores that she'd made and her staff was like, let's go, let's go, let's make another one, right? Mm. And she just couldn't do it. And it turned out she'd had five abortions and she was afraid mm. if she had another store She'd have another abortion. Mm. So, and it turned out, guess what the stores were selling? Baby clothing clothes. for children. And- <laughs> right. So she'd made mm. a store for each of those children that had mm. not come through unconsciously, totally unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a way that we think that's a much different way than our conscious story-making mm-hmm. mind. This work does let it lets us access that. Right. So you're working with the system, the connections between these people's personal lives, their families, their psyches, and how they're conducting their daily affairs, their businesses. I think that's how we work as family therapists, too. And I think about Mm -hmm. the analogy with the body as in chiropractic work, for instance, that if I'm seeing a chiropractor for pain in my neck, it it might turn out that the problem is originating in my hips, right? We don't always work directly right. on the area where we're experiencing the complaint consciously. Um, sometimes we have to work somewhere else in the system. And in the modern day psychotherapy, it's it's hard to get people who aren't depth therapists to understand that. So when dealing with insurance, right. for instance, you know, I've I've had insurance claims denied for chiropractic care because they were working on the mm. wrong part of my body, not the one that I was oh, wow. going for treatment for. And I think that therapy mm. can be like that too, right? In order to fit the medical model, it's like, okay, well, they're seeing you for depression. You should be talking about depression and you should be right. focusing on the standard of care for depression. And it's like, well, there's all kinds of reasons that people can become depressed. Depression can be an adaptive response, for instance, to a situation where we have learned helplessness. If you've been trapped for a long mm-hmm. period of time without any options, right? Uh, then at some point your nervous system kind of downregulates. like, okay, I guess we're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. We're not getting right. half of what we want. We're just gonna, we're just gonna be at about a three on a scale of one to 10, right? And then, mm-hmm. and it, it's hard to acclimate or even recognize when when the situation has changed or or when we mm-hmm. have the ability to change the situation. So I think we we acclimate to our place in a system. For sure. Right. And a lot of your work is looking at all the different components and how they're operating in relationship to each other. Right. Yeah. You and I were talking before and I, I think I said the individual's the wrong unit of measure, right? Mm-hmm. This is what our society is based around is being like it's you. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, And I think there is a value in looking at what am I able to do, but I think there's also so much value in understanding like, what, how did I get here? What else is going on? You Mm -hmm. know, what are the circumstances that I'm faced with? And not to be a victim of circumstance, but to go, Mm -hmm. you know, like, 
what we we know epigenetics is a, a real thing. We know mm-hmm. that you know the the Dutch famine was a, a study that was done a number of years ago where they found that um, the Dutch people who were starved during World War II that their grandchildren even were showing you know changes in their metabolism mm-hmm. uh, from that experience. So we really learned that. You know, the, your body is trying to learn from the bodies that came before you. What should I be doing, mm-hmm. right? And that's not just mm-hmm. food. That's also, like I said before, like if I'm looking into a depressed face, is that all there is? Mm. Okay, don't get your hopes up. As a child, mm. right? As an infant, mm-hmm. it's going to yeah. give you a certain set point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think uh, recovering our ourselves as parts of living systems. Um, and understanding the impact on that is really um, so helpful. I think you right? said something key that I wanted to explore with you when you said to to do this without being a victim. Because I, I think that that's easy to do. It's easy to go to blame, you know, really to vacillate between blaming myself and blaming the world. Mm. The article I just wrote on um, this two-part series on psychosocial pandemics, the first part um, is about modern psychotherapy and its misconceptions about systems. And I write about this, right? That I think one of my concerns for the direction society is heading right now is that I think people are interested in systems, but in a flawed way. People are really interested in positioning. Yeah. How did someone get to this point where they're having these difficulties? Who and what is around them and what historically happened to contribute to this, right? But there's also kind of this, I want to say, rigid, black and white, maybe naive or overly simplistic approach that I see to kind of the, the victim and oppressor model ending up looking a lot like the Cartman drama triangle of right. victim, persecutor, and rescuer. And one of the mm-hmm. key takeaways for anyone who studies the Cartman drama triangle is that the goal isn't to be the, it's not to be the rescuer, right? Which on the surface looks like the best role, uh, nor is it right. to, to be the victim or to justify why you're the persecutor. It's to get out of the cycle. And you recognize that over-identification with victimhood or over-identification with helping even uh, can perpetuate the drama. And one of the ways I think about that, roles are temporary relational dynamics, right? My role with you is I have been a client of your workshops and right now I'm sort of a colleague, acquaintance interviewing you for my podcast, right? But that doesn't mean that who I am is a workshop participant and podcaster, right? Those are very small right. parts of who I am. I'm also in all these different roles with different people. And part of what makes for psychosocial health is, again, that fluidity of being able to adapt appropriately to each role while also having an internal sense of who you are that is robust and complex and can allow for that flexibility. And I think part of what's happening now with the ways that people are looking at systems is they're looking at roles and making them a little too permanent or locked into identity. Like, mm-hmm. yes, okay, yeah, someone has been victimized. 
in this particular role. They were victimized by this person or maybe by this institution, or at least they've been Mm -hmm. disadvantaged by this particular social dynamic that we're concerned with. That's real. But also, we're not helping anyone by creating a story in which that person's identity is based on victimhood because that's that's a, a helpless, disempowered state, right? But you also don't get out of victimhood by emphasizing what others have done wrong or what others are doing wrong. So I'm really curious in your work, without victimhood, without blame, uh, in a a mature way, how do you help people simultaneously acknowledge the things that truly have been out of their control, uh, but also find their agency? Mm-hmm. Well said. Actually, that's really well said. Those two things right there. So Bert had a sometimes very controversial way of kind of looking at this. And one of the things he emphasized was not forgiveness, was not pushing against oppressors, but acceptance as a starting point. Like until you could accept reality the way it is, until you stopped st- arguing with what is, you couldn't take a step forward. And uh, and that that did get him in some trouble sometimes because people don't necessarily like that. But if you just accept, you know, this is where I am, this is what is, n- now you're in a position to figure out what you can do about it. If you're arguing with whether it should or shouldn't be, mm. now then you're stuck, mm-hmm. right? You're stuck in an argument. Mm-hmm. If you can say, well, here it is. And the people who, if you look at people who actually have taken on systems like of oppression or perhaps something is polluting their neighborhood and they've gone to bat with the company, they've, they, they have stuck to the facts too. Mm. It's like, this is here, this is that, this is where we are, this is what's happened, mm. you know? Uh, so this idea of starting from what is. And Bert also used to say, and I, I, it's really true, you can't work with fe- people's weaknesses in healing. Mm. You have to work with their strength. Mm. So he would literally not, <laughs> not work with people. He was, you know, he was famous. He didn't actually have to bother if you would show up. If you're going to show up as a helpless child, he probably wasn't going to work with you. Mm. You know, he wanted to see you mobilize what strength you had. Mm. Because you can build with that. You can't when somebody's identified as a helpless victim. Mm-hmm. Right? So, the, so what you're saying makes good sense to me. It's like we have to find the places where we do have agency. Mm-hmm. We have to see what is happening. It may not be pretty. Mm-hmm. Right? But given where you are and, and what you can do, now you can mount a realistic response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we're caught in stories of victim oppressor, you know, stories that in some ways can rob us of our strength. Mm-hmm. Instead of asking somebody, how have you endured that? How have you managed with that situation? Mm-hmm. What has helped you get through that so far? Now I'm asking for where, where are your strengths and resources? Mm-hmm. Because we can build on that. We can do something with that, mm-hmm. right? So the focus on, yes, systems need to be changed. And um, I was working on some course materials the other day and came across um, Hofstede's 
you know, cultural dimensions that he's the six different cultural dimensions. He's mapped out at least six. And uh, cultures do vary quite a bit. You know, there's different ways, different ideas about how to do human life and how to be in relationship with our environment. Um, and yet, I think there's some things that create more general happiness, mm-hmm. more general, po- more possibility for us to tap into the talent that's in here. You know, there's a, also the saying, talent follows a bell curve, opportunity does not. <laughs> hmm. Right? So talent is distributed in the population, but the opportunity to use it may not be. Mm. And I think there's some systems and structures that let us access more talent, people with talent have more opportunity. And uh, starting from where you're at. Mm-hmm. And this in family work, this is really important too, because you know, you may have had parents, your father might have been a raging alcoholic and violent and abusive. And he's still your father. So how do you deal with that, right? Mm-hmm. As long as you're engaged in a project of blaming and rejecting him, you're entangled with him. You're stuck. Mm-hmm. Where's your focus? If you can say, yeah, I can see why dad, you know, his circumstances were very difficult, poverty, abuse. I understand why that was his response. I can see that. I can accept that that was so. I don't have to accept that that's good behavior. But I'm no longer engaged in a project of trying to change dad. Mm-hmm. Now I can say, okay, given that, given what that I've got from that, what can I do now? Mm-hmm. How do I go forward from here? Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a way, I think this is a, in a way what you're pointing to, there's a way in which the stories that we tell and the positions that we create in those stories can either empower us or disempower us. Mm-hmm. Whether the story contains hardship and really sometimes horrendous things, people can still sometimes find their strength and find places to stand in that. Mm-hmm. Then enable them to take a next step mm-hmm. out of a situation that is difficult. So this idea of where are we entangled? Mm-hmm. You know, where are we captured by our story? Mm-hmm. Where have our feelings led us? maybe a bit astray Mm -hmm. rather than help us finish something and move on. Mm -hmm. Constellation work, because it sets the whole system on the floor, you can see generations. We We can go back. It doesn't matter if they're alive or dead. We can still see what happened, right? We can still see the patterns and sometimes the causes for those patterns. Tragedies happen. Families lose members in war or, or famine. You know, wealth can disappear. All of these things happen. How we deal with that is where we have a choice. Mm. I love that. Hearing you talk about this, I was thinking of how it connects with what you were saying earlier about the wisdom of the body. And right now I want to say like the animal body. I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. how what you're describing is really instinctual. It's what all animals do. Right. In some ways, it's that freedom from the idea of should, the idea of there right. <laughs> being a God, a heaven, a hell, a right, a wrong, anything other than where am I right now and how do I survive? Right. I, my survival instincts mm-hmm. will tell me where to be. And so, is it unfair that humans have created a world in which animals' environments have been poisoned and their migratory 
patterns disrupted and and their food chain altered right all that is unfair but the bird mm-hmm. doesn't wake up in the morning going humans are so unfair right the bird right. wakes up in the morning like well i'm in this nest um on this rooftop of new york city and uh this is the landscape in which i will find my food today and and feed my baby right. chicks <laughs> Right. I think one of the things that's uh, that's helpful to keep in mind about us as a species, right, and how we've managed to get our spot and on the planet is we're not very impressive. Like our claws are not very sharp. We don't run very fast. Our teeth would not scare anything, right? As a species, our superpower has been cooperation, you know, mm. has been our ability to band together as a group, which means that belonging to a group is essential for our survival. Mm-hmm. So belonging turns out to be a huge driver of a lot of this other stuff, mm-hmm. right? Because we all belong to this, we ha- I have to belong to the tribe or I might be the tiger's lunch if I'm mm-hmm. out there by myself. All right, together we can scare off the tiger, but if it's just me and the tiger, the tiger has an advantage, mm-hmm. clearly, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, uh, the need to belong in order to survive is really deeply uh, embedded in us. Mm-hmm. And we're used to, to belonging to small groups, small familial groups, right? Mm-hmm. And each group has its own, you know, habits and ways of doing things and ways of knowing you're one of us and the other guy over there is not, mm-hmm. right? And if there's only so much food and so much, so many resources, we have the problem of deciding who gets what and how is that handled. So in constellation work, we talk about belonging as the driver for social order and mm-hmm. uh, balancing give and take within our membership. Mm-hmm. So we, we uh, you know, this tribalism, this need to belong, the conscience that, that goes with that. Good or evil isn't decided by moral standards, really. It's the what allows me to belong to my group. Mm-hmm. So if you're in my group, I can do horrible things to the other group with a clean conscience, right? People can fly planes into buildings with a perfectly clean conscience Mm -hmm. because they're following the rules of their group and they belong, Mm -hmm. right? So belonging is is really important for us. And because of that, it kind of can blind us to larger systems and larger circumstances. We're not really designed for, you know, billions to, mm-hmm. to even we can't even imagine millions, let alone thousands, let alone, right? This is beyond our ken. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. We think in uh, smaller terms. Even inside, there's a woman named Karen Stevenson who's an anthropologist and went inside like the Navy and you know IBM big companies and mapped all the little things that people do all day. Right? Who do you talk to for this? Where do you go for that? Hmm. Sure enough, even inside a corporate hierarchy are these little informal networks of trust. Right. So when we try to think about our relationship to other species, our relationship to the planet, we're not really set up for that here. Right. Hmm. If we were embedded in a world where that was a small, we were a small tribe, utterly dependent on. our natural surrounding in relationship with that, our belonging would feel quite different to us. But our belonging has been collapsed to the human domain only. 
And in that, the decisions we make are like, how do I, you know, how do I get a place here? And my sense of good and bad is, you know, conscience mm-hmm. is going to be shaped by what do I need to do to belong. Mm-hmm. So Bert used to call um, conscience a great pretender. It was just a perceptual organ that governed your belonging. It wasn't mm. necessarily related to whether you were doing good things or mm. not good things in the world. Oh, I love it that. It feels right when you're doing what helps you belong to your group. Mm-hmm. And because we live in such complicated times, we can have conflicts of conscience, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I want to go out and party with the girls tonight, but you know, I'm supposed to be at my Aunt Lulu's for tea. So I have, there's two conflicting belongings that are happening there. Mm-hmm. And, and how do I resolve that? You know, so work and home life, we can have conflict. Right. Mm-hmm. Hearing you talk about this, I'm thinking about the work of Jonathan Haidt. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, yeah. He talks about how humans are part monkey and part bee. And he talks about the hymenoptera, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's class or genus, right? But but that that right. organization, that that system. And I'm also thinking about what you said about tribalism and belonging. Um, so I actually went to you with an issue about belonging. And I know you don't remember my constellation because you do so many constellations. I mean, I, yeah. But but I, I have a lot around belonging and having to do with the unique circumstances of my upbringing and there really not being any options for belonging. Mm-hmm. And I, I often think of humans in terms of the individual, the tribal, and and the universal or collective instincts and I'm I'm highly individual and universal with very little tribalism in me which presents its mm-hmm. pros and cons right because on the one hand belonging right. is something I really struggle with and you're right that without belonging you have nothing if if you're human you're you're doomed you have to find a group of people to belong mm-hmm. to right. so it's it's a very unsettling state to be in but at the same time I kind of see through the tribalism and I was also simultaneously thinking of another part of Jonathan Haidt's work which is around the moral instinct right i mm-hmm. think uh as people are compelled by their moral instincts that are shaped by their tribe uh, there is this sense, like you were saying, that my moral instinct means that I'm on the side of good and not evil or right and not wrong, mm-hmm. whatever your religious or philosophical framework is. And I think that that is in part due to a failure to see what what Jonathan Haidt would call the moral palette, right? That we have these kind mm-hmm. of flavors of morality that instinctually appeal to us. and And those are universal beyond any political party. They're things like loyalty and sanctity and protecting people from harm, right? Those are our deepest moral impulses. But different cultures uh, and political groups lean more heavily towards certain flavors of the moral palette than others. And then the expression, Mm -hmm. the ideas about how to manifest that flavor of the moral palette can vary widely by culture and even by region in the United States, um, according to all Mm -hmm. the local factors. So I think about this, how do we really understand good and evil, so to speak, when we're all kind of programmed to have these moral instincts that really serve to protect us as a member of the group? So then what do you do with, what do you do when your group's moral code says one thing, but your inner moral compass 
says another. And that's where you have the outliers. And I, I tend to be in more more of that category, you know, more right. kind of the heretic. And we need the heretics to uh, sure. to break things that aren't working, right? And to dispel illusions and and push evolution forward. But also the, the deep tribal instinct kicks in when someone sees a member of the tribe acting outside of the bounds of the tribe going, you don't do that, right? And the instinct is to punish right. and either exclude right, or, or exclude. contain right. that member so that they don't cause more problems for right. the other member. Right. Well, Bernard has this, he has a number of irritating sayings, actually. <laughs> <laughs> One of them is sometimes you have to be guilty to be happy. Uh, oh. And by that, he means sometimes you have to go against the rules of your group and risk exclusion mm -hmm. because belonging is not going to work for you. Mm -hmm. you you're, you're not going to be happy. And so sometimes we have to be guilty relative to the rules of our group. Uh, and mm -hmm. the conscience is that feeling of guilt or innocence, like I'm doing the right thing or I'm not, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes we have to be guilty to be happy. And he also has the, another annoying saying, but very useful, is sometimes we go seeking comfort when what we need is courage. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that so much. I I wonder about that. It reminds me of uh, a time I was working with a family, and I was exploring with an adolescent, why do you want to do such and such a thing? Of course, I'm not going to share any details here. And they said, well, I just find comfort in it, or I find it comforting or comfortable, right? And mm -hmm. this just kept coming up, this notion of comfort. And I wanted to explore mm -hmm. that because, you know, whenever someone's entire emphasis is on pursuing comfort, it's like, what do they mm -hmm. need to be comforted from? Because mm -hmm. a balanced mm -hmm. life includes comfort and challenge, right? And there's only so much right. fulfillment we can get out of comfort because if you're in right. touch with your instincts, if you're comfortable for too long, you feel this itchy sense of stagnation, like mm -hmm. there's more to life than this. You know, if you were to always eat comfort right. food, you'd start to feel kind of icky in your body and be like, all right, I need to go for a run and eat a salad. There's something not right here, right? right. But it's, it's when <laughs> yeah. you're numbing out your instincts, right? If you're using the things mm. that comfort you to dissociate, mm -hmm or repress. Yeah, so when I hear somebody asking for comfort like that, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking for like what is there that is so uncomfortable for you? Right. The comfort is what you need. Right. Like what is there that is like a constant discomfort? Mm -hmm. You know, it could be something like you know, if I look at the system, my mom is the one that's suicidal, even though I'm the one that's acting out, mm -hmm. right? Or we always talk about the symptom bearer is not necessarily the person who's got the issue in right. the, or driving the issue in the family system. So I, I'm looking for like, okay, that's a that's a response. You know, what mm -hmm. is, it's just like self-medication. Like, what is it you're trying to do with that? Like, mm -hmm. how is that functioning for you? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm sure it's true. Is you know, it's one of the reasons I enjoy talking with you. Is like we're both systems people here. Yeah. It's like you know, what is that trying to do in the mm -hmm. system? Mm -hmm. What is and whose voice is that? Mm -hmm. That's the other thing we really learn to listen to in constellations. Mm -hmm. Is like I hear that coming out of your mouth, and whose voice is that? Because uh, it may not be yours. Wow! Like who are you trying to comfort? Mm. Really, mm -hmm. is it you? Are you the one in is there somebody else that needs comforting here mm. that can't get it? Mm -hmm. You know, it just it's this idea of like where does that really belong? 
I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. We're all so entrained and connected with each other. Where is, where does that really, what, what is that doing? How does that work? Mm-hmm. And how do I, if I listen to that as a, an expression from this living system, what is it telling me? Like I'm sitting with one member of the system saying, I'm seeking comfort. I really need comfort. I'm not getting enough comfort. I'm going, okay, what is that telling me about how this works? Mm-hmm. And what comfort is trying to do and what this person is trying to do. And it may be that they're feeling their parents' depression and trying to mm-hmm. trying to soothe the anxiety that that creates in them. Mm-hmm. And even if I help comfort them, I'm still not going to get to what's driving this behavior in the system. Mm-hmm. We also, in, in family therapy, use this term identified patient, right? Mm-hmm. To describe the symptomatic one. And... A lot of what I hear you talking about in this approach that's very similar, if not identical, to, to you know, family systems theory, well, it has to do with positively reframing the symptom, right? And and mm-hmm. that ties back to what we were talking about earlier with how do you acknowledge where there is victimhood or where there is powerlessness without over-identification with that. I think when someone's exhibiting mm-hmm. a symptom, whether that's something like depression or if it's a behavioral thing that they're feeling out of control of or maybe the parents are bringing the child for a behavioral issue that symptom of it is an expression of distress within the system and it appears on the surface as powerlessness and helplessness i'm powerless over my depression i'm powerless over my behavior i'm acting out but when you view the behavior or the symptom in the context of the system it's playing a role and in some ways, right. it's displaying that that person does have agency. They might not be using it in a way that is optimal for their health and their own individuation and self-actualization. But um, I gave the example in this article I recently wrote on psych- psychosocial pandemics that let's say you have a teenager who's got behavioral issues. Let's say she's shoplifting and binge drinking if you're just looking at it at an individual level, there's a lot that you're going to miss. And also, if you look at right. it from the the level of having kind of a rigid, overly simplistic view of power and powerlessness, maybe you look at, oh, the parents are too controlling, so she's acting out of control. Right. But if you have a more complex, nuanced understanding of the system, you can see that maybe this teenager has a reason that she's afraid that mom and dad are on the brink of divorce. Maybe she's been witnessing something there and that's really scary. And Mm -hmm. so having a behavioral issue brings the parents together, distracts them from their own problems. And the shoplifting and binge drinking, as dangerous as those behaviors are, feel safer in comparison to the idea of her whole family dissolving. So then you have to work with the symptom not as something that she's powerless over, but 
something that she's an active agent in, regardless of how conscious she are she is of her agency right. right and then you positively reframe that this is serving this purpose then you highlight that there's a purpose that needs to be served here once you've identified what purpose it needs to be served then you have other options right. for how that purpose can be served what mom and dad can do to free the teenager of the burden mm -hmm. of occupying that role in the family Exactly. That's well said. You know, I think one of the, th the, there is so much similarity. Like one of the things I realized not that recent, not that long ago is that um, the people who developed constellation work, you know, burden the first tier of colleagues, they all had good groundings in family systems. Mm -hmm. they, they had, you know, they had uh, some, they'd come across it someplace. And uh, so we, we are very, we are basically doing that, but we're sort of sneaking in the back door. Mm -hmm. Because we're actually going like, and go choose some objects or people and show me, right? So I don't mm. have to go through all of that intense, you know, because the client is going to create the image. Like I didn't, my fingerprints are not on that, mm -hmm. right? As a, as a facilitator or therapist, right? I'm like, a, you made the image and it's yours, you own it. And so if your image reveals these mm situations and this is what's going on mm -hmm. there's such a great sense of like i i felt it i did it i see it mm. right now it's mine and i feel like i can you know when people were moving in your like when we set up your system on the floor and i'm moving somebody you felt it like it was moving in you mm -hmm. right it's it's like it's ours mm -hmm. and there's a sense i think that constellation but through some of the forms of the work some of the ways that we do it kind of gives people a sense of agency over that system, like a sense of embodied connection and uh, ability to see that things can move, that things can change, mm -hmm. right? Because it's so direct and it's so physical. And the way you describe that sounds so much more efficient <laughs> than what we do in talk <laughs> I, I love like it. Like a I picture mean, I know, a thousand love. words. I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a time I did something similar with a client, just kind of following my instincts. I used to have Play-Doh in my office. And one time mm -hmm. I just wanted my client to take some Play-Doh to represent, you know, the client, the spouse and the job and a, a few other mm -hmm. things. And, and just that molding of the shape, you know, the sense of the spouse hovering over the client, right? What, did, what right, does that exactly. feel like, right? The job feeling mm -hmm. like a wall, Um Right. You the get body so gets much to speak. The soma speaks. Yeah. But I'm also so thinking about... So we actually about, tap the lived experience of the person, right? Yeah. And I'm, th I'm thinking as I'm hearing you speak, I mean, we're of different generations. And I, I often think about what I understand about how psychotherapy was being explored in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was very experimental. I mean, you had a lot of... They were playing around with MDMA until the 80s, right? And... Right. And uh, I was reading this book on family therapy. I can't remember who it was by now, uh, one of the big names that was written in the 80s. And there were interventions suggested there that you would never in a million years try if you were a licensed therapist working with insurance companies. There was this one, nope. uh, it was a behavioral intervention where uh, every time the person does the unwanted habit, uh, well, the first time they just pay the therapist one cent. And then the second time they do the unwanted habit, it's two cents and it just keeps doubling every time. And anyone who knows anything about exponential growth will understand that this right. rapidly spirals <laughs> out of control. And I was thinking, 
oh, I would lose my license if I tried that, you know? <laughs> what right, would the insurance yeah. companies have to say to me? And so sometimes I, I'm i a little envious of, of your generation. I know you're not a licensed therapist, but you're, you're this brilliant other thing, other other role that you serve, but, but you're part of a generation that got to really play around and explore the psyche. And it just right. doesn't, doesn't feel like there is as much kind of control and oversight mm. and... And I wonder, in the absence, uh, in the absence of that safe space to experiment, how do we innovate? Because if we're always trying right. to do things by the books, uh, and we're afraid of getting in trouble, then mm-hmm. we can't discover new things. Right. I think you got a really important point there. I remember I, I had the pleasure of studying with Arnie Mendel and uh, you know Amy Mendel and the process-oriented folks when they first came to uh, to. U.S. here. Um, and I remember him saying, when he realized that he was going to like break the rules, he was going to violate the norms of the Jungian society that he was a part of in Zurich, that he went and gathered a bunch of other people around him <laughs> so so that they couldn't like, you know, just like excommunicate him. He was like bigger. Hmm. And so, you know, that is it. And Bert too, it was an innovator, did got himself into all kinds of hot water at various times. You know, I think that is uh, one of the challenges we have because of the commercial aspect, mm-hmm. because of the way money and insurance companies and has gotten into a place that is sort of a human-to-human domain, that we now have two systems. One is actually kind of locking down the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and real therapy is, as you know, real real work with a human being. We're, this is not reading sheet mu- music. This is jazz. It's wild. Like, you... You better know your chord structure because mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be innovating because that's a real human being in a real system and that, you know, it's not going to necessarily follow the book. So I do think by having a system that financially people in order to get help are bound to, quote, evidence-based practices and certain kinds of, you know, both the, both the therapist and the client are bound into this thing that does keep us as human beings from just like, being creative Mm -hmm. and you know one of the things i appreciate about a constellation work is it really it it isn't there aren't you know it isn't so bounded people can be quite creative with this work you can use it in all kinds of ways there's just some basic concepts that are really helpful Uh, the understanding of belonging and conscience you know the form of like okay how can i represent that to you so you can see what you're doing Mm. right those are very simple things really But they allow for so much creativity in terms of how you use them. And I think any good method, it, it has an open door someplace. Mm. right? So mm-hmm. the next thing can come. And unfortunately, I think our financial system is what's actually locking up our creativity here. So that to be sometimes a really effective... I mean, if you read some of the stuff that Milton Erickson did with his clients, right? he's the one that would say, you know, rapport doesn't mean people like you. It means they trust you. Uh, Oh, wow. So his clients would be cursing him as they walked out the door, but they would do the thing that he asked them Uh, to do, mm -hmm. right? The fellow who's smoking and drinking too much or, or, um, you know, Milton Erickson said, well, that's fine. You can smoke as much as you like, but you have to walk to the store, you know, a half a mile down the road to get your cigarettes, knowing what that would do, Right. And the man who, you know, was cursing as he walked out the door, but did it mm-hmm. and changed his habits. 
Mm -hmm. right? Those kinds of using what the client presents, you know, that kind of creativity, I think is constrained. And I, I feel for people with licensure, Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's not only is there competition within those bodies within, you know, like there's a, there's a pecking order there mm-hmm. and there's all kinds of like, so we are human no matter where we are, right. We have status and we have, you know, different things, but you know, there is this sense of if you do wrong, you'll get sued. Mm-hmm. There's like the, the, the carrot and stick are kind of big here. Mm-hmm. And I think it does mean that we don't necessarily have the opportunity to tap into creativity, both ours and our clients. Mm-hmm. And, and that is sad. I love that the idea that, um, that rapport doesn't mean that people like you. It means that they trust you. Because I think that that we do have such a lack of authenticity and depth in human relationships that it's it's nice to have that friend who will tell you what they really think. And I I hope mm-hmm. that each person in the world has at least one friend you can turn to for an honest opinion and where right. you feel the love and, and you're grateful for that level of authenticity. And I think a lot of people lack that. And I, I do have that experience as a therapist that I, I can be very gentle, but I can also be blunt. I don't always sugarcoat things. Sometimes I say things that mm-hmm. in a different context might sound horribly offensive, but in the right moment with the right relationship with the client right. and with them having developed a sense of trust generally in like who I am and what I'm about and what I'm here to help with, that that mm-hmm. directness can be a real medicine. And there's a relief in that. There's a relief in knowing yes. at least some of my relationships are genuine. People aren't just mm-hmm. pretending to like me. And, and there's right. also a love in that maybe you could say a paternal or a maternal love, right? That it's possible to love and respect someone and also see where they are in a growth trajectory, that they don't have to be perfect and know everything right now in order to be lovable. In fact, part of how you help people grow if you are in a therapist or healing or guiding role is that you help them see those blind spots and correct them in a way that they trust and and feel grateful for. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Bert was known for being rather blunt, <laughs> and uh, and sometimes not not effectively, mm. right? So mm-hmm. so blunt that it didn't really. So you're you're right in that. There's two components to that. One is having the courage yourself to be honest with people, mm-hmm. right? To take that risk, and the other is to to have the respect and care for them so that they feel they feel that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think you're right. We all need somebody who can see what we can't see. Right? Mm-hmm. We're just one human being, and uh, and I think that's also you know one of the gifts of constellation work is it, it you set it up there it is mm-hmm. right there's there's you know the thing that you're doing can be really obvious because uh, there's no place to hide when you've made your own picture of it. Mm. So um, having somebody with you. To look at that and stand by and say, "Yeah, you're right. That is that is going to be a problem, right? Not that you're bad, mm-hmm. but that this is creating something for you. Like remembering that the person is still good. Mm-hmm. That the behavior can be a problem. And sometimes it's just having someone by our side that gives us that courage to face those difficult things. Exactly. 
Right. I say it's much easier to go into a dark closet <laughs> with somebody else in a flashlight. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, to go downstairs into the basement with somebody else in a flashlight, mm. not by yourself. And I think that's a lot of, uh, of what we do. In some ways, the client already knows, you know, they're living it. Mm. They haven't named it. I think it's Dan Siegel that says, name it to claim it. But I mm. think that's also how you tame it. Mm. If you can't name it, you can't say, yep, that I am. And you can't do something about it. So I think part of what we do in our work is help people name mm. what's going on. Give a, give a framework for it. Now you're reminding me of the work of Sarah Payton. Do you know her? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know Sarah very well. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, she's lovely. Yeah, she's, I think Sarah's, she was, I think I was one of her first introductions to constellation work way back when. Oh, neat. So, and she's really uh, contributed beautifully to our field. I didn't know that she was in constellations, but I was just thinking of what you were saying about, yeah. you know, self-resonance and... And we know that just naming your feeling to yourself, right? Just having that mm-hmm. inner dialogue of, are you feeling sad because you really wish your sister would call? You know, just asking right. yourself those questions has such a soothing effect on the nervous system. And, and that's one of the ways we can learn mm-hmm. to self-reparent and self-soothe even in, in the absence of those other people to be there for us, although we do need both. Yeah, it depends on how scary the basement is. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've done a lot of work around grief and uh, mm-hmm. loss, of course, because that's such a mm-hmm. uh, has such an impact on family systems, of course. And one of the things that is really important for us in order to go through the disorganization of loss and then have the support to reorganize is that sense of containment and accompaniment. Mm-hmm. Like if we don't have that, we often won't complete the process because mm-hmm. it's just too overwhelming. We need to have somebody kind of hold our hand if we get disorganized, mm-hmm. somebody who's n- not in it to uh, kind of keep keep us together more or less so that we can mm-hmm. fall apart a little bit mm-hmm. so that we have a chance to reorganize and be become something new in a sense with relation to that so if you're going down in the basement and there's something that could be really disorganizing for you mm-hmm. like really the structure that you built to cope with things might be uh, shaken a little mm-hmm. bit having somebody who's not going to be shaken by that with you mm-hmm. can give you that kind of supporting scaffolding or structure to be able to fall apart a bit mm-hmm. so that you can reorganize and incorporate that experience in a healthy way what do you think it's doing to society that since the pandemic, there's been a lot of deaths that people haven't been able to be present for with their loved ones. Uh, You know, both Mm -hmm. people haven't been able to be with their loved ones as they were dying and also haven't been able to come together with their family and support system during the grieving process or what should be the grieving process. Well, I think we are going to have even more unresolved grief and loss and, uh, you know, that is, that does create, like, the nervous system gets stuck, mm-hmm. right? We, we either get stuck in the disorganization and have trouble reorganizing because we don't get that sense of completion, of, like, being there for my parents' last breath, you know, and just under, really physically, somatically understanding and accompanying that process and realizing it's real, mm-hmm. right? I can't pretend that they're going to show up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so I think there's a big hiccup just in the way that our system is set up to move through that, 
through the disorganization of loss, like we've lost a part of our social body, the person who would be part of my world and call me and talk to me and be there for holidays, that's gone. So that disorganizes my programs, if you will, of how I get through life. I'm, I can't do that anymore. Now I have to find a new way to do things. Mm-hmm. And without kind of the processes and rituals and the really seeing, feeling, touching, knowing it's real, um, and having the sense of containment and support of others with us, but it's going to be a lot harder because you know we're we're designed as social creatures. So I think we are we are going to have some work to do to get through this. And I I hope that other parts of our culture will respond to that with compassion. I remember um, my husband had a colleague at, at work working for a big corporation and uh, her daughter, 21-year-old daughter, was uh, killed in a car accident and the company gave her three days off. What do you think you get back in three days? You don't get back a whole person, right? It takes time. The body moves on a different time scale. So for us to process these losses, the expectations of our mechanized industrial world and what our living human bodies are trying to do are not in sync, right? It takes like a full year. You have to go through all the seasons and rituals and patterns and reorganize those. And it takes support to do that. So we're definitely not setting ourselves up for making that an easy journey. Mm. (laughs) And there will be consequences. We're going to have dissociated, disorganized people. Mm. who are trying to function and then feeling bad about themselves as individuals. What's wrong with me? I should. Mm-hmm. There's those shoulds. Again, we were talking about Stephanie, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it's it's sad. It's tough. I think we need to, like, have days of national mourning or things that yeah. would really acknowledge um, and support people in their process of moving through this. So, and not being able to see or say goodbye or mm-hmm. the kinds of things that let our souls settle a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's a big loss. It makes it harder. So. And, and when we dissociate mm-hmm. out of necessity to disconnect from an overwhelming experience because we're alone in our grief, mm-hmm. for example, we lose right. access to so much because sensation and then the awareness of that sensation is, is just the beginning of being able to know what we want and take action and connect in any meaningful way or actualize in any meaningful way. I do want to ask you, though, since that's all quite heavy, what gives you hope? And as someone who's who's been around longer than I have and is, has witnessed a lot of change across cultures, what changes do you see happening now in the world that that you find encouraging or interesting in some way? One big thing that has uh, come into consciousness, maybe not always in the most effective way, but that is now on the table is the understanding how the human nervous system responds to trauma. Mm. That this is actually part of our vocabulary. It's not mm. like, uh, you know, it's we've, we've gone through two world wars and, a, you know, Vietnam is where we got the term PTSD. But like now we're starting to recognize that, hey, these are normal. You know, that's, it's normal to have certain kinds of responses. There are things we can do about it. Um, that getting ourselves to be full functional human beings again is within 
grasp. Mm. It's not like if something happens to you, you're stuck forever. It's like there's there's means and methods for healing and resolving uh, things that we used to just kind of brush under the table because we didn't really know what to do. Mm. So now it's like we have so many more tools and so many more understandings. I mean, you'll talk to Sarah. She's, she knows all the neurobiology of how this works. You know, it's like we have so much better understanding of ourselves and methods for uh, resolving these things so that we do have the opportunity to tap into our full potential, um, you know, what, what we can do rather than be stuck. For me, that's a really hopeful thing. Mm. That's a good thing. Oh, I'm glad you. I'm glad you see something to be hopeful about. <laughs> yeah. So, where can people find you? Where can they find more information about the work that you do and any offerings you might have in the future? So, my website is a good place to go. It's um, www.human-systems-institute.com, and uh, I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn, and I have a little YouTube channel. So those are all places you can find me. Later in 2022, um, I do have some trainings that people could join. So um, getting on my website, getting on my mailing list, that's your best bet Mm -hmm. to find out what I'm doing. And I'd imagine that therapists like me would be interested in those trainings. But what other kinds of people take an interest in this and and learn from you? Mostly people who work with people. Uh, I would put it that way, whether it's a physician, you know, or a, a therapist or a coach or consultant. Um, so people who are advising organizational leaders, for instance. So I'm kind of that, I work with the people who work with people, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, in terms of my trainings, it's like I'm, it's equipping professionals to use these modalities and, and use this approach. That's kind mm-hmm. of what I do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exciting. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing all this wonderful knowledge with us. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.